All right, Emmaus, Uh, if you've been with us for a while, hopefully your Bible is falling open to the book of Ruth on Sunday morning, so we are going going back there again, continuing to look at at God's character that comes through in the book of Ruth, and then the story of the gospel, the, the hope of salvation that we have that comes through that book, and so if you have a phone that has access to the Bible, or you have a copy of the Bible in front of you, the book of Ruth is pretty close to the beginning of your Bible. You go through those first five books of the Old Testament, and you go two more beyond that with some history books, Joshua and Judges, and then you get right into Ruth. And so we're going to be in the book of Ruth. Also up here on the screen, here in a few minutes, we'll have those uh, verses. A couple of quick announcements uh, right now. When we get to the end of the sermon here in just a little bit, we're going to stand up and we'll take the offering as an act of worship during that time. And, and that money that you give goes to the nations, that some of that goes so the, the gospel is taken to other places. And so we'll stand up and we'll pass the offering plates, and then we're going to sing a final anthem together of, of the hope that we proclaimed this morning. And then we're going to say, have a great day and send you out. So I want to do a couple of quick announcements right now. The first is, I know that sometime on the screen the words get washed out and things like that. Some of that's my own fault for not planning well. Some of that, though, is our projectors are on their last last leg. And actually at the very end of this month, we're going to have new projectors installed. So when we show pictures and videos, you won't have to scrunch your eyes and say, is that Jackson who can't spin the ball on his finger? Or like, who is that up there? Sorry, Jackson. But uh, um, you, you won't have to like, you know, squint to see what's on the screen. It's going to be, it's going to be really exciting to be able to have that for you. And so because of your faithfulness and giving, we want most of our money to be able to go for the spread of the gospel. We also want to take care of the resources we have here. And we've got a great uh, situation here. Just sometimes you can't see the screen well. So no, we're taking, we're taking care of that. We're, we're working on that. Also, if you are a guest of ours, or maybe you've been around for a few weeks and you're trying to figure out, I'm, I want to settle my life someplace. I want my family to settle someplace. Just trying to figure out, is Emmaus the right place for us? Are we called to serve here? Next Sunday... Let me have your attention if you're a guest of ours. Next Sunday, immediately after the morning worship service, we have a free, no-obligation lunch that we would like to provide for you. We call it Discover Emmaus. Immediately after the service is finished, we have a, a choir room right around the corner. We'll have lunch for you and your family. If you have little kids, if you'll let us know, we'll provide child care for them. You're not signing up forever to be a part of Emmaus, but it's a chance to meet the staff and hear a little bit more about what's going on in the church. And so if you have one of those guest cards, if you can access one of those in the seat back in front of you, if you just write lunch on there, put your name, put it in the offering plate. If this is your first Sunday to be here and you think, you know what, I don't know that this is going to be the right place for us, but I would like to have a little more information, come back next Sunday. Let us serve you lunch, tell you a little bit more about Emmaus, and we would love for you to be a part of that. So Emmaus members, if you know people who have visited a little bit over the summer and they're just still asking questions, this is an easy way to send a text message or an email and say, hey, come have lunch with me next week. Um, No pressure, no obligation, just come and be a part of that. So we want you to know about that. Third and finally, before we jump right into the middle of what we're doing this morning, we need some preschool teachers for for the semester coming up for Sunday school. 9, 15 a.m., you're not only ministering to preschoolers, you're ministering to their family, to their parents. What you do with the kids in that room is very important. 
what you do when the parents walk to the door is even more important. And so we need some people to step into those roles. Some people have had to step out because of situations going on in their lives. Um, but I think they would be the first champions to say, this is something you want to be a part of. If you're sitting in Sunday school and you ever have the experience of, man, I know all these stories right now, that's God's sign to go teach preschoolers. <laughs> uh, if you know all the Bible stories, then by all means, stop sitting in your Sunday school class and go find a preschool class and love on those kids and teach them the stories and, and especially love on their parents when, when they come to you. So I said this last year, I'll say it again. If you don't sign up, I show up at your Sunday school class the next couple of weeks and find you to, to come teach preschoolers. But, but I hope this is something that you could, could jump into. So that's all I want to say about those things. Excited, like Jim said, that we're kind of getting back into our routine. I want us to get started. Let me say a prayer for us, and then we're going to study the book of Ruth together for the next few minutes. God, I pray right now um, that you would focus my heart and, and my mind. God, we want to continue to look at this story. There's so many beautiful, powerful things that come out of this book of Ruth. So many things we see in the story, the way it points us to Christ, as we're going to see more next week. God, thank you for what you've done in my heart through this passage of Scripture. God, I pray this morning as we put the pieces together from Ruth to Revelation that our hearts would continue to think about those pictures we saw on the screen of the kids in Panama. God, we would continue to think about the people in our neighborhood, the way you call us to cross cultures, to cross streets, to cross national boundaries. God, I pray that we would leave this morning with our hearts focused on the fact that every single person on the globe needs to know the good news of Jesus Christ. It's in the name of Christ that we gather. It's in the name of Christ that we pray right now. Amen. So in, uh, in 1908, following a regulation that was already in place before statehood, in 1908, Oklahoma established a statute that made it a felony for any person of African descent to marry any person not of African descent. Similar measures were passed in 1921 and 1955, and in 1957, a similar statute was developed prohibiting interracial adoptions at that time. Now, laws like that that were in place in most states were overturned in 1967 as part of the Loving versus Virginia Supreme Court case. Um, and as recently as 2010, Oklahoma had the second most interracial marriages of any state in the Union behind only Hawaii. Certainly, our uh, Native American population, Hispanic population plays into that, but it'll be interesting to see when the 2020 census data comes out and they do some more Pew Research studies around that, what we find from that. But remember where we are in Scripture with the book of Ruth. We have the three circles, and if you're a guest of ours seeing this for the first time, just know we come back to this this is no way a replacement for study of Scripture. This is something that has just been so helpful in my mind that I keep putting it up in front of you. Also, it's been helpful to think about the book of Ruth. Up there in the top left, you have God's design, God's, 
We use the word providence, but we're talking of his sovereignty, his control, his power. Even in the hard times, God remains in control. He's at work among his people. And so God has a design for his world. He has a design for his people, and we established that the first week. But when we go away from God's design, that's called sin. And sin leads to brokenness. It leads to death. It leads to separation from God, both now and forever. And so in brokenness, people try to deal with that in so many different ways, but the only hope for our brokenness is found through the good news of Jesus Christ, what we call the gospel. And so we repent, we turn from that sin, we say, I can't deal with my problems on my own, but I believe that Jesus is taking care of this. He has died for my sins, he's defeated death, so I turn to him, and it leads us to the gospel. And Jeff led us through that idea that you see in Ruth of the kinsman redeemer, that God has made a way for his people to be saved, to be bought, to be rescued. And it leads us there to the gospel, but through the gospel, we are then led in life to recover and pursue God's design for our life. So when we experience the good news of Jesus, you're not just saved and say, well, hey, that's nice. Now I can go over and live my life however I want to. No, you're saying, now, God, how are you leading me? $100 word, sanctification. How are you making me holy? How are you leading me to live the life you called me to live? So last week we looked at how we're called to live in a countercultural way, especially in regard to how women and men act as the people of God. And now we come this morning to this idea of cross cultures. How are we called to live? Now, that means that over the last couple of weeks, we've dealt with gender, marriage, and race. Uh, three of if not the three most controversial topics in our world, three of the most controversial topics in our world. But I want you to know that my heart, our heart is not to be controversial. We, hear me clearly, we have not sought out these topics because they're hot topics in the culture. We're dealing with these topics because they're coming to us from the word of God. And so as we, we deal with these issues, we say we want to go through them, not around them. So when we're studying scripture and we're presented with these ideas, we're saying, God, what do you want to teach us? How are you leading us to understand this? And so this morning, I want to show you two, ultimately three, but we're going to focus on two, two cross-cultural marriages in scripture that will look very different by the time we play them out, but they're meant to connect together. That takes us to the book of Ruth. Here we go. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah. So we're talking about an Israelite. We're talking about one of the people of God here. A man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So he's leaving his land because of a famine, and he's going to essentially the land of of the enemies of the people of God. He's leaving this place of safety and security, but there's a famine in the land, and he sojourned means he doesn't mean to go there forever. His family needs food. He's going to take action, but he's going to their enemies. He's going to the land of their enemies in Moab. Verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his, his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, they went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, this is interesting. We talked about this the first week. He went there to sojourn, which was supposed to be a temporary plan to go and find food. But he gets there, 
and he remains there. There's this transition from what was going to be temporary now starts to look a little bit more permanent. And remember, he's in the land of the enemies of the people of God. They are not worshiping the one true God. They're not worshiping Yahweh. They're, they're going after other gods. Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died there, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. Now the idea that they have taken Moabite wives is not explicitly condemned here, but we're going to look at some verses here in a few minutes that matter very much about that idea. Because get the picture, Sojourn. We're going to go there temporarily, temporarily to find food. Okay, so we go to this country of our enemies. Then we remain there, and now we've not only remained there, but we're marrying into the culture. We're, we're, we're taking part of what's happening here. They lived there about 10 years, it says at the end of verse 4, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then verse 6, then she arose with her daughters-in-law, to return, return, key word in verse 1. It's all about returning back to the people of God, returning back to the plan of God. They returned from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Okay, before we go any further, I want to talk about these marriages that happened there in Moab, because there's a couple of passages of Scripture that, that explicitly deal with this. Deuteronomy chapter 7 Hey, the bold print worked a lot better this week. All right, praise God for bold, bold-faced type. That looks a little bit better. Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, talking about when he brings you into the promised land, into the land of Israel, when he brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall not marry with them. Speaking of, it didn't fit on one slide well, but speaking of the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, all these people that lived in the land there, sometimes just the word Canaanites is used, but it's all these different people that made up the land. He's saying, you're not to intermarry with them. Why? For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Here's what I want you to make sure we're, we're on the same page with at this point. When God is talking about intermarriage between cultures here in the Old Testament, his focus is religious purity, not racial purity. The reason that the intermarriage is not to take place is because if they do marry with these other cultures, he knows that their loyalty is going to be divided. Exhibit A, Solomon in the Old Testament, how his loyalties become divided, how he begins to allow other gods to come in to play here. And so he says, you're going to begin to, to serve other gods. If you want to later look at Deuteronomy chapter 21, you have an example of where God does allow for marriage across cultures for his people. If they go out to war to another place and they capture a woman from another place and they want to marry her, God puts into plan very strict regulations about how that will happen. They're going to have to respect her. They're going to have to protect her. They're going to have to provide for her. All these things that we've seen. So he puts into place something that's going to happen. This idea up here that God is concerned with the purity of his people, not the purity of the races, this idea you see come over to the New Testament. Look at these verses from the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is talking to the people there about the subjects of singleness and divorce and marriage. And he's talking to a woman here that if her husband dies, she is free to be married. She's free to remarry to whom she wishes, only in the Lord, though. 
He says, if you're going to remarry, you're going to marry someone who is also a worshiper of the one true God. You're going to marry someone who has that same religious devotion as you do, because many of you could stand up in here and say, hey, I'll give a quick testimony of what it looks like and feels like when you marry someone who does not share your desire to follow Jesus or does not share your desire to worship the one true God. You might be even tempted to get up out of your seat at the end of the service and run as fast as you can down here to the teenagers and say, let me tell you what it looks like when you don't do that because it will oftentimes lead you into incredible pain and difficulty. Does the Lord redeem those situations? Absolutely all the time, but it's not his design. It's not his plan for his people. Second Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. So we see a picture in Ruth of whether there's any intermarriage happening at the beginning of the book but it's not of the type that the Lord seems to bless. It's not the type he's calling them to because they're, they're marrying in such a way that's going to lead them to follow other gods. Now another picture. Go back to the book of Ruth. Let's see what it does look like when you get into chapter 2. So Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. So Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man. If you weren't with us a couple of weeks ago, or actually last week, hold on to that word worthy in your mind because it's going gonna, it's gonna to matter very much. A worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite. As you read the book of Ruth, it's very seldom just Ruth. It's often Ruth the Moabite. Quick little diversion here. In the book of Ruth, Naomi wants to change her name and call herself Mara, bitter. She has such a negative outlook of what the Lord is, is doing in her life. She's so downtrodden. But we saw in the book of Ruth, God won't let her change her name. She's never called Mara in the book of Ruth. She's always referred to Naomi. It's God's way of saying, no, no, you're not going to speak about your life in that way. You're Naomi. You're blessed. You're pleasant. You're good. You're not Mara. However, Ruth is continually referred to as the Moabite. It's as if Naomi's attempt to call herself Mara, that's not allowed because she's saying something about herself that is not true. Naomi, Ruth's connection to be a, a Moabite woman, God's not disregarding that. I think the picture there, I think the idea there, is that God does not desire to obliterate our cultural heritage. The story in Scripture is not that you lose your background. It's not that you lose your cultural heritage. It's that the Lord redeems that. And so there's no embarrassment in Ruth being a Moabite because we're going to see how God redeems that. There's no embarrassment in where you come from in your culture because that culture doesn't ultimately ident identify you. It's going to be the Lord, and he's going to take that and redeem it and transform it. And so Ruth over and over is called a Moabite here. So in verse 2 it says, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. 
And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz, in verse 5, said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servants, the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Verse 8, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Young women, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? This is the idea of protection we talked about. And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. The idea of provision. So you see this incredible picture of how Boaz is drawn to Ruth the Moabite here because he sees in her something that's very distinct, something that, that he's drawn to about her. Now, Ruth goes back and tells Naomi, hey, I ran into this attractive older guy. Uh, she says, oh, who was it? Boaz. She says, oh, you need to go back and find that guy. He is one of our relatives. He is able to redeem us. And so we know that Ruth goes in the night to Boaz, and if you go ahead to chapter 3, and you get down to verse 10, you see this interaction that begins to happen between Boaz and Ruth. Chapter 3, verse 10, he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear, verse 11, I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Remember how Boaz was described in chapter 2 as a worthy man? Ruth is described as a worthy woman. His connection with her was about character and religious devotion, not ethnicity. That was what mattered. If her character and her devotion to God had not matched up with his, any type of marriage would not have been of the Lord. But what matters here is he, worthy man, worthy woman, speaking of their character, their devotion to the Lord, they are brought together here. Now the story goes on, and we find out that there's actually a relative closer to the family than Boaz, so there's someone else that could step in, he turns out to be a greedy loser, and so they don't go, go with him. He backs out of the deal. You get over to chapter 4, verse 8, and here's what you get. Chapter 4, verse 8, after the closer relative backs out, it says, So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. And then notice in verse 10 his designation. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. In other words, I know exactly who I'm getting. I know exactly who I'm marrying. I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Now remember, these stories like this in the Old Testament, and really all over the ancient world, but especially these stories you run into in the Old Testament, what happens at the beginning 
is usually meant to either connect with or contrast what happens at the end. At the beginning of Ruth, you have marriages happening between Israelites and Moabites, and there's no sign that it's blessed of the Lord because they've gone there to remain, to live, and they're going to take on other gods. You get to the end of the book of Ruth, and you have a marriage between an Israelite and a Moabite, and by every indication, it is blessed of the Lord. That God is saying, this is a cross-cultural marriage that is in my name. It's for my purposes, according to my character. There's another picture of this that happens in the Old Testament. I've got the verses on the screen, but if you, you know, were like Bible drill champion as a kid, and you want to turn over there in your Bible, you're welcome to do. We're going to go to Numbers chapter 12. In your Old Testament, Numbers is not very far away from the book of Ruth. You just go back to the left a little bit. But you go back to, to Numbers chapter 12, and I want you to see another story that shows up there. It's going to be a story about Moses. And earlier in his life, Moses has a marriage to a woman named Zipporah. But Zipporah is sent away for a time, and we don't know exactly what's going on in that situation, but we know that Zipporah was sent away for a time. But look what you have in Numbers chapter 12 happening with this marriage. So in Numbers chapter 12, verses up on the screen, or if you've got them in front of you in your phone, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. When you see that word Cushite there, by almost every indication, in fact, just to the degree of certainty, that area being referred to is the area south of Egypt. You might think of it even as modern-day Sudan. It's kind of in, in that general area. Sometimes in the Bible, the area will be called, the people will be called the Ethiopians, but it's not exactly in modern-day Ethiopia area. So Cushite here is referring to the area south of Egypt. So who are we talking about whom Moses is married at this point? He's married a black African woman from this area south, south of Egypt. How does he come to marry her? Remember, when the people leave Egypt to go and be part of the Exodus, they are not an ethnically defined people so much at that point. In fact, we know from the indications of the Exodus that there are many different people who are going as part of the people of God. They believe in the one true God. They have seen his power. They're a part of the Exodus. And we know specifically that people from this Cush area were a part of the Exodus. And so very likely this woman was part of the Exodus. Very likely she was a worshiper of the one true God. And here Moses marries her in Numbers chapter 12. Skip down for a second to verse 8. After God calls them together for a little come to Jesus meeting, I guess that works in the Old Testament. He comes and calls them together for a family meeting and says, hey, listen up. There's some things I need to tell you. Numbers chapter 12, verse 8. In reference to Moses, I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. Speaking of Miriam and, and Aaron, he was kindled against them and he departed. And then look what happens in verse 10. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. 
Okay, here's one of those moments in biblical interpretation that you want to be careful, but the starkness of the image is so overwhelming. Miriam is not happy about this woman that Moses is going to marry, this black African woman that Moses is going to marry. She's not happy about it. We don't know exactly why she's not happy, but she's obviously not happy about it. And the Lord calls her together and says, uh, I know who I'm talking to here with Moses. We have a relationship like none other. And then she's turned leprous. Her skin turns white as snow. It's almost as if the Lord is saying, you don't like her skin? You think white skin is better, lighter skin is better? I'll show you what lighter skin looks like. And there's a picture there of, yes, yes, we don't want to overinterpret. Yes, we want to be aware of, but man, it just hits you as this picture. The Lord is very clear about what matters in this situation. And Miriam has completely gone, gone the wrong direction. And remember, when you look at Scripture, white is not always a picture of purity. Sometimes it's a picture of leprosy. And when our sins are described, remember, they're described as scarlet, not as black. So never, ever, ever let you, anybody suck you into that trap of white is pure and black is impure because it doesn't work biblically. It doesn't work any other way, especially in the story in Numbers chapter 12. So you have these pictures of cross-cultural marriage, but I want to point you to another cross-cultural marriage in Scripture. The trend in Scripture is always toward diversity, not, not eliminating our ethnicity, not eliminating our culture, but always toward the celebration and the redemption of that, which leads us to the book of Revelation. When you get to the book of Revelation, you get a couple of key passages that show up there. First in Revelation chapter 5, and then in Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10 and these are up on the screen as well if, if getting to Revelation is a little is too hard right now. But Revelation 5, 9 and 10, they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then look at chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they're crying out in verse 10, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. So you have these pictures of incredible diversity in worship here in the book of Revelation, but then go ahead to chapter 19. Because remember, we're talking about the concept of marriage, we're talking about the concept of multiple cultures gathered together for worship, gathered together for this celebration. Look what happens when you get to chapter 19 of Revelation. Chapter 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah. There's our word again that we've saying this morning. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. 
Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. When you get into the New Testament and you start to see these marriage suppers and these, these celebrations referenced, one of the things that makes the religious leaders so upset in the New Testament is who is invited to take part in these feasts. Who's invited to the marriage suppers of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb? What you find in the book of Revelation, it's, it's people from every culture, every nation, every language, every tribe that's called together for the celebration, which tells us, remember that the Lamb, remember that our Savior is a Middle Eastern Jewish person as he came to this earth as the Son of God. So if you are not a Jew, but you are a follower of Jesus Christ, Every one of us will take part in a cross-cultural marriage celebration. That we are drawn together. This is, this is the book of Romans coming into play here, Romans 9 through 11. This is the idea that God brings together his people from every culture, from every background, and says what matters is who you are connected to. Your life is found in Jesus Christ. And there are so many beautiful pictures of this in the New Testament. I want to show you just a couple here that kind of lead us along this path of what God wants to do among his people. Um, the first one would be 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32. Paul's kind of making a side comment here in, in 1 Corinthians 10, but he says, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. This is a sign from very early in the time of the church that you begin to have a third group of people develop here. Okay, you've got the Jews, you've got the Gentiles or the Greeks, but if you're a part of the church of God, what matters is you're in Christ. Colossians 3. Here it doesn't matter Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Christ is all and in all. What matters is not your ethnicity. The people of God are no longer a covenant nation. Now they're this international group of people that are brought together in the covenant of Jesus Christ. Another place this shows up, and probably the key place in the New Testament I would point you to, is Ephesians chapter 2. This whole idea of how God brings together Jew and Gentile as he makes this cross-cultural marriage in Christ, it's probably seen most clearly in Ephesians chapter 2. Um, shameless plug, completely, totally selfish, shameless plug, but my wife is teaching a Bible study in the book of Ephesians this fall, so if you want to know more about this, I'm sure she'd love to have you be a part of of her Bible study, but Ephesians chapter 2, you get down to verse 12, and it says this, remember, there was a time, speaking to the Gentiles, remember, there was a time, at that time, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Let me just say really quickly, if you're here this morning with family and friends, maybe you say, you know what, I'm not sure about the Bible, I don't consider myself a follower of Jesus, but, but I, I do respect this, I want to know more about this. Don't miss the reality for every person on the face of the earth, that without Christ, we are separated from him, we have no hope, and we are without God in the world. We're in a position that we cannot rescue ourselves from. We are without hope without the power of God in Christ at work in our lives. And so Paul establishes this for the people here. What's the answer? Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you 
who once were far off. So you say, you know what, I don't, I don't feel connected to God. I don't have a relationship with God. I feel disconnected from this whole idea of religion and spirituality. In Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What in the flesh keeps us separated in Christ we are drawn together? Uh, Kenny alluded to this well in his Wednesday night sermon a few weeks ago, that when you're talking about the family of God, our connection to one another in Christ is even tighter than our connection to people in our family who are not followers of Jesus. That our core identity and relationship to one another is that we are in Christ together. Do we love our family members? Absolutely we do. And we seek to show the love of God to them. We seek to share the gospel with them. But our connection to them is actually separated because they are separated from God in Christ. But when we are drawn together, this dividing wall is broken down. So it doesn't matter Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter black or white. It doesn't matter male or female. Those things matter because they're gifts from God, but they don't become the defining factor of our life. What's defining is are we in Christ or not? Have we experienced that salvation? You go down to verse 15. Ephesians 2, 15, how did he do this? He abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So he took upon himself the law. Matthew 5 says he fulfilled the law that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I don't need to tell you that we live in a world of hostility. We live in a world where if you are separate from someone, it's not just that you disagree with them or that you're different from them, it's that you become enemies of the other person. So it's a world of discord, of hostility, of incredible division. But make sure you see this. When you are reconciled with God, it paves the way for you to be reconciled with those around you. And when the people of God display the reconciliation of Christ to the world, it becomes a picture of Christ. It becomes a way that we share the gospel. In our Sunday school class this morning, we were talking about the concept of unity in Christ. When we are unified with one another, it shows a divided world. There's a different way, and that way is found through Jesus. Let me end with this verse, and we're going to wrap up. Very end of Ephesians chapter 2. I say very end. Um, right there at verse 22, it says 21 on the screen. Sorry about that. Um, verse 22. In him, in Christ, you that are brought together, you're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. When a husband and wife come together in marriage and that marriage is built up in the Lord, it becomes a display of the gospel. It comes a way that you share the gospel with others. In the same way, when the church is drawn together from all kinds of different backgrounds, from all kinds of different cultures, from all kinds of different experiences, and we come together reconciled in Christ, that too is a work of the Spirit of God. So what does that look like for us? It means we celebrate the diversity in worship, that we gather together with people. When you say, I, the only word that we could say together is hallelujah and understand one another, we'll say that because we're gonna worship together. 
that worship in the Lord is not about finding the people you like the most and you're most similar to and grouping together with them and say, hey, we'll worship together. Worship in Christ is saying, no, 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 we're all brought together from all kinds of experiences, all kinds of cultures, all kinds of backgrounds because our eyes are on the Savior and we're gonna worship him together. And what happens is the more you do that together, the more you're around people that are different from you, the more God uses that in your transformation to become more like Christ. So if I'm around people that are just like me, I'm not going to be as strong or developed as I could be versus if I'm around people that are different from me, which leads us to out missions. We're going to constantly share the gospel with people who aren't like us because the issue is not are they like me, but the issue is do they need Christ? And the answer for every person is yes. Our hope to be made right with God is only through Jesus Christ, and so we're not going to allow any cultural or external factors to determine whether or not we tell them about Jesus. Cross-cultural marriage, I know, is controversial, but it's at the heart of this beautiful biblical story in the book of Ruth, and more importantly, it points us to our future in Christ in the book of Revelation, and I pray that you'll be encouraged and inspired by that this morning. We're going to stand together in just a minute. When we do, we're going to pass the offering plates around. You can put the connect card saying you want to come to the lunch next week. You can put your offering in there. We're going to sing a song of celebration together. When that song is finished, you're dismissed. We stay up here at the front. I would love to pray with you and talk with you afterward about how God's at work in your life. Let me pray for us right now, and then we're going to sing this final song together this morning. God, thank you for the richness of your word. God, thank you that we can take the book of Ruth. We can track that picture through the New Testament, that powerful passage in Ephesians 2. And God, you've shown us where it's all pointing to those incredible pictures in the book of Revelation of people gathered together to worship you, not because of their ethnicity, not because of their culture, not because of the color of their skin, but because they look to Christ as the only hope for their salvation. God, I pray very specifically that if there's anybody here this morning who thinks that their standing with you is based on the culture they were raised in, God, that you would turn their eyes from that and point them to Jesus, the one who draws us near to you through his death on the cross. God, let none of us depend on our United States cultural heritage. God, that's a great blessing, but we do not depend on that for our standing before you. God, let none of us depend on our family background. The question is, are we looking to Jesus Christ? And if we are, that's gonna be so evident in our lives and the way we worship and the way we treat those around us. God, do incredible cross-cultural work in Emmaus. God, let us be a picture of that. Let us be an avenue for that happening. God, receive our worship here and then send us out to be your people. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.